Hello there and welcome back after a short summer break to the EuroPlex podcast. I'm Ewan Healy and with me is Gabriel Hedengren. Gabriel, how are you doing? Hi, I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. With us having an episode off for the summer, there's quite a lot to talk about in this week's episode and we're going to be spending a lot of time talking about a remarkable uh, weekend and week in Europe's last dictatorship, Belarus, where elections, in inverted commas, took place last Sunday. Across Belarus, people are still protesting the official results of the election announced by authorities, and many are, are worried about the future of the, the democratic opposition movements uh, in the countries and attempts to curtail freedoms of citizens right in plain sight after this so-called election. We're going to be speaking to Belarusian journalist and analyst for the US Agency for Global Media called Franak Vyachorka, who's going to be telling us a bit more about events on the ground, and to our own Leon Lisner, who's going to help us unpack how we can deal with and understand election results, in inverted commas, like those from Belarus. First, let's take a look at some of the news stories going around Europe you might have missed. Indeed. And in case you missed it, COVID-19, still a big news story. Um, and recently, countries around um, Europe have seen upticks in COVID-19 cases. Uh, I'm sure you will have heard of Spain, where the thousands of new cases are now being detected every day, concentrated in Madrid, Catalonia, and Aragonia. Other countries like Poland, Romania, Greece, and Bulgaria have seen record numbers of daily cases in recent weeks, too. Um, and as these spikes have occurred, um, there's been a lot of politics around travel restrictions. So it's currently a, a complicated landscape in traveling around Europe in terms of where you have to quarantine, where you have to take tests. Uh, so that's something that I envision at least um, persisting uh, for some time to come. Uh, so in case that will have any major political uh, implications, we might report on that in the future. In Spain, the country's former king and head of state, Juan Carlos, has fled the country amid a corruption scandal relating to the construction of a high-speed railway in Saudi Arabia. Juan Carlos, or Juan Carlos I, who is reportedly staying in a luxury hotel in Abu Dhabi, is not formally under any investigation, but the accusations against him have triggered a crisis for the country's monarchy, with public support for it as an institution taking a big hit and a split between the governing party of the coalition's view on Spain remaining a monarchy uh, coming back into the fore. President Pedro Sanchez of the center-left Socialist Party has been publicly supportive of the current King Philippe, whereas his coalition partner Pablo Iglesias of the left-wing Podemos is a committed Republican. So there is tension there among the governing parties. So moving on to the Vatican. As the Vatican's economy suffers a blow uh, due to the major drop in tourism caused by COVID-19, uh, Pope Francis has designated um, six women to watch over the Holy See's finances. And I'm sad to say that this decision is unprecedented because uh, it leads to the first ever appointment of women to top positions within the Roman Church administration. So that's great news, um, but late, you might say. Um, the former British Labour Party's Minister Ruth Kelly and the former Treasury to Charles, Prince of Wales, Leslie Farrar, are two of those um, chosen new members. Uh, who are going to assume the reins of the main regulatory agency of financial and economical affairs within uh, the Catholic city-state. The other two members are from Germany and two are from Spain. Uh, from Germany, uh, you have Dr. Charlotte Kreuter-Kirchhoff, a professor of German and foreign public law and chairperson as well of the Hildegais Association. And Dr. Maria Kolak, 
who's a distinguished banker and president of the National Association of German Cooperative Banks. As I said, there are also two representatives from Spain. So that's Maria Concepcion Osacar Caracochea, a founding partner of the Azora Group, uh, and Eva Castillo Sanz, a member of multiple boards of directors of companies, including Bankia, Sardoya Otis, and formerly Telefonica. So yeah, I think that's the first time we, we bring up the Vatican, the Holy See in our, in our podcast, Ewan. A really interesting uh, country, city-state in Europe. That Yeah, it's quite interesting to talk about the political dynamics of, of a country that a lot of people don't think of as having politics. Mm. Now, stretching the definition of Europe elects to its furthest limit, we're going to be taking you to Russia, but not Western Russia, to the one of the furthest eastern parts of Russia, uh, the region of Khabarovsk, um, which is actually close to the Chinese border and further east than South Korea. So really is uh, stretching the definition of Europe, where protests against the Russian government continue in response to the arrest of regional governor Sergei Fergal. Now, Fergal, a member of the far-right Liberal Democratic Party, which is part of the so-called systemic opposition in Russia, has been charged with being complicit in the murder of several businessmen 15 years ago. Protesters believe this charge to be a politically motivated one, aimed at Frugal after he assumed his governorship in 2018 when he won a shock victory against the Kremlin-backed United Russia candidate. The protests have attracted thousands of participants from the last four weeks and they show no signs of losing momentum. And now on to the LGBTQ protests in Poland. So in more protest news, Poland's capital um, city Warsaw attracted thousands of protesters against the anti-LGBTQ stance boused by the law and justice government and the recent attention of transgender activist called Malgorzata Szutowicz and the successive arrest of um, 48 pro-LGBTQ demonstrators um, in the country. The protests, obviously, they occur in the context, you know, it's less than a month after the re-election of President Ajay Duda, who's a national conservative president tied to the Law and Justice Party, and been widely reported across Europe during his campaign speeches, he claimed things such as the LGBTQ movement being more destructive than communism and calling it an invasive ideology that undermines uh, the traditional values of Poland. So the handling of the current events by the uh, Polish administration and authorities has led to both this activism and these protests in Poland, but also criticism uh, from EU officials and uh, NGOs such as Human Rights Watch. Uh, warning uh, for the worsening um, of rule of law in Poland and, of course, discrimination against um, the LGBTQ um, minority in the country. Now to another country which doesn't get too much coverage uh, in the mainstream media, and that is Cyprus, where there's been another breakup in a long line of fractures in the political center. So three out of 10 members of the centrist Biko party, a member of the Socialist and Democrats group in the European Parliament, have announced that they are leaving the party, citing long-running discontent with the leadership of Nicolas Papadopoulos and what they see as his favoritism towards uh, certain party officials. Along with several high-ranking officials, they're creating a new political platform and insist that they will not join with Deepa, another party which split away from Deco. All these shifts may prove important in the May 2021 legislative elections, less than a year from now, which will also test the strength of a budding partnership between kingmaker Deco party, as I just mentioned, and the left-wing Arkel. So now we're going to move on to non-European uh, news. 
um, that have still, you know, dominated um, political media and discourse in, in the recent weeks. Uh, so first, we're, go we're talking about Beirut. Um, the government of Lebanon uh, has caved into pressures by citizens that have been protesting, um, of course, uh, over the deadly explosion in the center of uh, the city uh, that we all um, saw the shocking videos from there um, last week. And in response, the government announced on Monday that it will be stepping down. So in a press conference following the successive resignations of multiple of the government's ministers, the Prime Minister, Hassan Diab, announced that he had notified the president of the country, Michel Aoun, of the government's decision to dismantle. He said that the explosion that rocked Beirut on the 4th of August was the result of decades of endemic corruption, echoing the calls by many citizens for a complete overhaul of the country's political system, uh, which currently apportions positions of power along religious lines, Lebanon's a very diverse country, so that's a way to try and balance a lot of the long-term conflicts within the country. Diab is, has been prime minister just since January, so not for a great amount of time, uh, when he succeeded Saad Hariri after his resignation. And he's been supported by the parties of what's known as the March 8 Alliance, uh, which is backed in part by uh, Hezbollah. Uh, he will continue as an acting PM in what is now a caretaker government, until a new government is appointed, either after new elections um, or by the president, uh, Michel Aoun, in consultation with the parliament. That's still unclear. Neither option appears to be in sight or there's no news in the past few days of how it's all going to move forward. For more information about this and how it's impacting electoral politics in Lebanon, I urge you to follow our friends at uh, Asia Lex, um, who will cover that in more detail for us. Speaking of coverage by our sister accounts, just bringing you brief news that I'm sure you will have heard from our colleagues at America, Alex, and of course elsewhere, is that U.S. presidential uh, candidate for the Democratic Party or U.S. presidential nominee for the Democratic Party, Joe Biden, has selected California Senator Kamala Harris to be his vice presidential nominee. While the pick cannot be described as surprising, uh, he, she was the odds favorite and has been for many months, it is particularly historic because Senator Harris is the first woman of color and the first person of Asian descent to be nominated for a national office by any of the major American parties. To stay up to date on this story and all the future election coverage before the election in November, follow, of course, America Elegé. Are you listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or on any other platform that allows for reviews? Please drop us a review if so, and why not make it five stars if you think we're worth it? It will only take you a minute and it will mean the world for us. Also, if you like our podcast and you want to help us grow, be sure to also subscribe and of course tell people about us and share our episodes with family and friends. If you have an idea for a segment, any thoughts on topics we should be covering, or if you just want to say hi to us, please shoot us an email at podcast at europelex.eu. We're going to kick off our round of interviews about events in Belarus with our very own Europelex colleague, Leon Liesner. Leon, welcome to the podcast. In this so-called election We've seen what is a textbook example of the activity by a non-democratic government to try and give itself legitimacy. Um, this has obviously manifested itself in false results being shared by the government and declared by the Electoral Commission, and which have claimed that 
uh, incumbent president Alexandra Lukashenko has received 80% of the vote um, to uh, leading challenger Susana Skyers, 10%. Paint us a picture, how wrong is that? Yeah, so um, these results, as you say, are really a textbook example of a sham election. It started all with the intimidation of candidates when candidate Babarika was still in the race. Uh, later, the children of certain candidates were targeted. Legal persecutions were started in investigation into Babarika's activities and also the other main challenger, Valerie and uh, eventually the two main challengers were also excluded from the race. Uh, we saw that a state TV but that was uh, not neutral, that did not report at all about the political mood in the country. We saw the secrecy of the ballot revoked uh, and uh, the election observers not being admitted to the polling stations under the uh, pretense of COVID-19. We saw ballot staffing on election day. We saw pre-marked ballots during pre-voting and during the actual voting. We saw even ballots taken out of polling stations. Um, there's also this uh, video that um, was shared a lot on the internet where an election committee member was seen taking uh, sacks of ballots out of the window of a polling station. We have seen internet shutdowns throughout the entire campaign. We have seen internet shutdowns on election day. We have seen um, internet shutdowns even during the agitation of candidates, all making it difficult. And eventually the, the crown was uh, that uh, hostage video that we could observe with Tsikhanouskaya um, calling to recognize the results. That was only the end of it. And um, how wrong are these results? Well, it's a real sham election where the result was predetermined and has nothing at all to do with the reality. Uh, there were above 100 polling stations where observers observed uh, legit counting. And in these polling stations, Sikhanouskaya won with a, um, with a vote share of 60 to 80 percent just to make the dimensions of uh, voting fraud uh, clear that we have uh, observed here can you explain to us a little bit about what's been happening since the protest uh, for listeners who might not have seen the hostage video can you just tell us about what's understood to have happened to the uh, who should have been the president-elect uh, Susana Skaya what's happened to her now Svetlana Tikhanovskaya obviously was not uh, recognizing the result of this sham election and on Tuesday she went to the Central uh, Electoral Committee building to file a formal complaint against uh, the result, which by the way by now all candidates except the incumbent have done. While doing that she was not seen for seven hours Later, it turned out they kept her inside that building, interrogating her and uh, pressuring her. Also, her husband is still in, in prison. And it led to her, uh, to her record uh, a video in which she called uh, for the results to be recognized. And afterwards, she departed to uh, Lithuania. Um, 
where she is now and according to the, the Lithuanian authorities uh, she is uh, safe there. What's the popular response been like? There's clearly been footage of, of protests. What kind of scale of, of, of anger are we looking at at these uh, obviously fake results? I find the, the scale pretty remarkable considering um, the Belarusian authorities have centralized all of their forces into, in particular, the capital Minsk and also a large uh, riot police and military presence in all parts of the country. Yet people are going to the streets. The police is um, just violent. Uh, they're um, actively attacking the demonstrations. It's also their goal. They're trying to scare everyone, sometimes even uh, following them into their houses and uh, just smashing random cars. It's uh, all part of their strategy, but yet the Belarusians are not uh, stopping to express their anger. And uh, today we have again seen some more um, peaceful pictures where uh, women in, uh, in white clothes collectively went on the street holding flowers up, where uh, doctors assembled in large uh, human chains in protests. And um, the civil society is really active and you really see that it is not just um, young people or a small minority who's going on the streets, but you see pensioners, you see everyone going out despite this um, military force that is trying to prevent assembly. And yet so many people are drawn to the streets. It's uh, incredible. Thanks for describing that to us. It has been a really encouraging thing to see civil society so active in a country um, which is so uh, authoritarian. Um, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and just talking to us a little bit about these results. Um, and I know you'll be listening as closely as I am to our um, next interview, which Gabriel's going to tell us a little bit more about now. While some seem to think that Europolex is an institution of the European Union, we aren't. We are a private organization run by volunteers. We aren't funded by big donors, and we are only able to do what we do because of our supporters and donors. Everything we do, this podcast, our website, our Twitter account, and other social media are all done because of supporters like those on Patreon. As a Patreon subscriber, you don't just get to support us, you also get access to exclusive discussions, special content, and more. Access all of that from as little as one euro a month. Head to our Patreon and subscribe. So I'm now joined by uh, Farnak Vyachorka, a journalist from uh, the Belarusian capital, Minsk, who has been reporting on all the details of these elections and the fallout of them in recent days. He's also been politically active since a young age, uh, participating in uh, founding numerous pro-democracy uh, parties and campaigning organizations. Uh, and to top it off, he also co-wrote the screenplay of Viva Belarus, which I know a lot of our members um, re really enjoy, a movie about nonconformist youth in the country, um, based on his very own biography. Thank you so much for joining us, um, Franak. I know you're in high demand. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So the past few days, we have seen, and you've reported on a violent crackdown of protests uh, that are going on against the Lukashenko regime uh, following the electoral fraud of last weekend that most of us were expecting. Can you give us just a quick summary of the extent of this repression in your view? And what effect is it having on the protest movement now? Is it intensifying it? 
I think the protest will continue no matter what. Even the uh, fact that Tikhanovskaya Svetlana, former candidate for president, left uh, the country, didn't stop people from uh, getting out to the streets yesterday. Of course, authorities realize that the protests are getting stronger, not declining. And this is why they intensified the violence. They basically gave full immunity for uh, violence to police officers and uh, riot police literally shooting people outside. And they detain people arbitrarily. There are no any investigations, any procedures. It's basically like anti-terrorist operation in Minsk and regions. Uh, people are getting angry with this and uh, people uh, intend to protest again and again. Uh, and I think uh, no firearms to stop uh, the, the, the these guys. Yeah. So in in your movie Viva Belarus, the main character Miron, I believe his name is, he appears to have undergone you know struggles quite similar to the situation that we we're observing now. But I thought I'd get your view since you've worked with politics and campaigning in Belarus for some time. How does the current situation and the current movement differ from the one portrayed in the film? Uh, what's changed this time around? Unfortunately, not many things changed in Belarus for 26 years. I must say that even protests in 1995, they remind uh, the protests in 2020 because same Lukashenko, same ideology, same conflict between the elites, Soviet elites that do not listen to people and uh, the new generation which want uh, changes. However, the protests right now, they're much more massive and they are technologically advanced. Mm -hmm. 10 years ago, when there was a square, the, the elections 2010 and the movie Viva Belarus is about, we didn't have technology. We didn't have smartphones, broadband, internet. Uh, we, we actually trying to use media uh, for reporting, for organizing, but it was not the uh, silver bullet. And internet yeah. right now, it's a silver, it's a magic source. People communicate through messengers and messengers basically became the uh, real space uh, free of censorship and control. So obviously you, you're doing a lot of your reporting on social media and as you say, all these messaging platforms um, are so key to the organizing and to getting the word and the imagery out there of what's going on. I wanted your perspective on international media. Uh, I know you've spoken to a lot of us, I'm sure, in recent days. How do you think it's done in terms of covering these events and in covering Belarus overall? There is a very limited uh, reaction, both of media and uh, um, and poli politicians. Of course, you know, it's much bigger than it was before. Of course, Belarus in is in top in some countries, in top news, but still it deserves much more. Uh, I think for many people, um, for many media outlets and editors, it's interesting because of the violence, because of blood. But I think we should go in depth and we should um, uh, look at Belarus today as the um, place where history of Europe uh, is being decided. Uh, because if Belarus will succeed in terms of making democratic revolution it will launch the domino effect in russia as well mm -hmm. and it will be super inspirational 
for all uh, authoritarian states uh, uh, in neighboring countries and the post-Soviet space. So looking forward, do you think that what you've just described is, is there a likelihood of that happening? Are you optimistic about the possibility to achieve change for real this time? Obviously, we've all seen the force with which the movement is being challenged and beaten down violently. Do you see it have the, the longevity to enact change? Are you hopeful? Uh, I think there is no other choice. You know, the only issue is time, how much time and how much violence must, must happen before this transit uh, will, will happen. Uh, there is no way that uh, everything will, will go back to the situation before elections. Lukashenko is trying to win some time for himself. This is why he employed all the right police soldier special units. But it will give him perhaps another year, but not more. And Lukashenko lost forever the possibility to leave the presidency as the uh, as the president, actually, as the normal president, you know, and to to be remembered as the uh, creator of independent Belarus, to be remembered as the important personality in the history. I think he he wrote the biography to himself during the last three days. He will be remembered by uh, shooting journalists. He will be remembered by killing people. He will be remembered by um, criminal who stole um, the most three decades uh, of years from Belarus people. Thank you, Farnak, for speaking to us and keep up your important work. And um, IEPLEX will continue following the developments uh, and re report on them the best we can. Uh, but I really appreciate your time and your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the EuropeLX podcast. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review for us. Also, to stay up to date with European politics, make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, all of them. You can find us also at EuropeLX.eu um, and at EuropeLX across all those social media platforms, except for Instagram, that is, because there it's at Europe underscore Lex. Thank you very much and see you next time. You've been listening to the EuropeLex podcast hosted by me, Ewan Healy, and Gabriel Hedenwin. The managing editor was Polychronos Karampalas, and the producer and audio engineers were Rafael Penurios and Leon Lizana. The script was written by our hosts and our writing team, which is Matthew Nicholson, Jorgos Kukouris, and Guillaume Ferreira Resende. The music was by Jose Alvarado, and everything was only possible because of our patrons on Patreon. Cheerio.